If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Federal leaders are now acknowledging changes to our healthcare system are badly needed. Beauty, welcome to the life of everyday Canadians. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. I like this. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. Gang's mostly all here. Boy, what a great night in the Hammer on Friday, uh, blocking the Rodeo Kings at First Ontario Centre. Uh, absolute great time. Uh, Colin James uh, was there for an appearance. Serena Ryder, Tara Lightfoot. It was just uh, absolutely fabulous. And uh, they finishing off their uh, their uh, tour and 25-year celebration, which was kind of interrupted by COVID. Uh, but anyway, uh, congratulations to all them and a successful tour. Great time, too. Uh, and, of course, we'll feature some of that music again uh, coming up a little later on throughout the show. All right. And a jam-packed one it is. And um, and we're going to continue to talk a lot about health care over the course of the show. Uh, and, and even more so, uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has, uh, uh, like Christia Freeland, woken up to the fact that, did you know we have a problem in our Canadian health care system? Did you know that there's uh, whatever is happening here is happening in every single province all the way across the country uh and here's another thing you you may not have known this has been happening for almost three years now due to a global pandemic which has shown its hand on our uh fragile weak canadian healthcare system which was on the brink at any given time and now pushed over the brink in the last three years and finally finally And we talked about this during the height of this global pandemic, that once we were finished this, we were going to work on health care. And you know what? I'll tell you something. If there wasn't a jump in the flu and the respiratory illness uh, that is really putting the strain uh, for the kids in health care, we wouldn't be talking about it. Because like COVID, it would have sort of come and gone and blended in with the wallpaper of the day. But because as predicted, perhaps not as severe, but as predicted, uh, we've got a, a pretty heavy flu season and respiratory illness season uh, with everything else that's been going on as we're managing coming out of a global pandemic. So here we are. And, you know, we promised that we were going to address the Canadian healthcare system. It's not just a province issue. When you've got all the premiers on a Zoom call together begging to see the prime minister, come on. Yet we're talking, oh, it's provincial. Yet we're talking dental care, also provincial. We're talking uh, daycare, also provincial. But never, never, never interested in health care. Because there's nothing shiny and add to new to it. You can't introduce a new program. And now we have, and the other day it was Christia Freeland. I understand there's a problem and people are frightened about our Canadian healthcare system. Really? Welcome to the party. Hang up your hat and coat and come on in and let's have a chat. Unbelievable. And Jugmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, who are propping up 
Justin Trudeau and his government are just, oh, oh, oh we got to, hey, if you notice there's something wrong with a health care problem or a health care system, we should do something about that. No, no, no. You should make him do something about it like you did with dental care. But your cause of the day is bigger than everybody else's, which is right now the health care system. Here's what Jugmeet Singh said the prime minister should do. Mothers, grandmothers, and leaders in our community wrote a scathing letter indicting this government and this prime minister's lack of action in dealing with the health care crisis, particularly as it refers to children. Children can't breathe. They're ending up in emergency rooms that are full, waiting hours and hours to get care. And the prime minister hasn't shown up and shown leadership. For parents, the health of their kids is the number one priority. Why isn't it for the prime minister? Here, here, here. Why isn't it for you? You are the other half of this coalition. Why has this not been a priority for Jugmeet Singh? Because health care or dental care has been pushed through, even though it has no checks and balances or very few, like the $27 billion we've wasted on COVID relief that went to people that shouldn't have gone to. So that's all tickety-boo. But nobody, hey, have you noticed there's a problem with health care? Hey, have you, hey, have you heard that there's lineups in emergency rooms? Have you heard that this hasn't all died down over COVID-19, after COVID-19? Hello, where have you been? And now, now the leader of the NDP who's propping up this government that, you know, couldn't, couldn't win back its majority. Now the leader of the NDP is telling us what the prime minister should do. He should. He should do this. He should do. What are you doing? You haven't even talked about any of this. And the only reason we are talking about health care now is because the kids are clogging up the emergency uh, rooms in the ICUs, much like the COVID patients were a year or two ago. If this had just gone on and we had drifted out of COVID, they wouldn't be doing anything about health care. They'd be introducing new programs, flavors of the day that get them elected. They're not interested. And now it's rich, I think, for the leader of the NDP who props up this government to stand there and go, you know what? You guys got to get your act together about that health care stuff. Really? Stop saving the damn planet and start saving Canadians. Stop creating new programs. Let's fix some old stalwarts that need to be upgraded. Here's an idea. Uh, here's another good one. All right. Um, we, we, obviously, we know the situation where our healthcare system is once again uh, stretched to the breaking point. Once again, in a crisis situation. This time with the kids, um, not in a uh, COVID nineteen world, but in a post COVID nineteen world, if you want to call it that, with respiratory illnesses and just the plain old flu making a, a just a, a real hard hit uh, to this segment of the population. We've talked about vaccination. Let's get the opinion of Dr. Carrie Bowman. Bye bioethicist and assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. 
Very well indeed. I saw you over the weekend on the news, and you were touching on something that I wanted you to elaborate on before we get into vaccination and stuff regarding the flu. And you were talking about, uh, with the obviously shortages we have in healthcare and the strain, uh, bringing back uh, doctors, nurses, healthcare workers who were not necessarily vaccinated, and perhaps the immunity that they would have built up and such. Is there that many on the sidelines in the healthcare industry that decided not to get vaxxed? You know, there, statistically, there's not a massive amount, but look, you, you know the story, as do I. We need every capable person, every capable body we can possibly get. And, and you know, my comments were that I actually think that we should be doing this. And the reason I say this is, is really in terms of science that, you know, Omicron has really changed the, 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 the situation we're in, the complexion of this pandemic. And so if you factor in, you know, the the fact that so many people have had Omicron and the transmission and how much transmission is actually reduced from being vaccinated, um, as well as the fact that people returning would be, you know, absolutely garbed in PPE, meaning personal protective equipment, I actually think we should bring them back. And what I worry about is it's become such a power struggle between us and them and vaccinated and Mm non-vaccinated that, you know, we take an emotional aggressive position before we've really thought through the science of this. And I I think we have to start getting along again. And I actually think we should take them back if they're going to use PPE. And um, and that could change. No, the pandemic, things could change at any point. But those are my thoughts on that one. Um, uh, is this a discussion you can see happening? Is it something that's still stopping many from getting back in? You know, not many. There's a subset of people that that aren't vaccinated. But, you know, it never was a massive amount. And I doubt they're going to want to be vaccinated now. Um, And some of those people, it it was the COVID vaccine. Like, they're absolutely willing to take flu vaccines or other vaccines. You know, I, I, I... A lot of people come my way, and I've worked in the Toronto teaching hospitals for a long time. You know, four of the people that I was quite, that I heard a lot from that were healthcare workers and not vaccinated, four women all were pregnant at the time of the vaccination Mm -hmm. campaign and really didn't want to be vaccinated during a pregnancy. So those pregnancies have ended in healthy children. And um, so, you know, they're coming back. Um, Now, that's not the case for everybody. But, um, you know, we, we never thinking- did much analysis of why people weren't willing to be vaccinated. It, it, it was just, you know, we got so bitter. Um, and I, I, I actually think that we, we should be taking them back on board at this point. And if the evidence changes, then we can reverse that. On that note, Carrie, do you think that because of the divisiveness that you have spoke of, that that has anything to do with the fact that there's uh, a relatively low uptake for the flu vaccine? We're certainly talking about how our uh, healthcare system is overwhelmed. Kids are even dying out west. Uh, it's it's a pretty severe situation, much like the pandemic was as we were waiting for a vaccination. We have one here, but nobody seems to really be all that interested in it. Um, should we be talking about that more should we be talking more about vaccination or has the is the fatigue so strong there that you know nobody wants to even have the discussion anymore yeah i i I do think that you know because things got so polarized and so heated nobody really wants to go back too aggressively to that conversation but when we look at the flu vaccine you know some years the flu vaccine lines up really nicely with what's out there and some years it doesn't um Mm -hmm. this year it does doesn't mean it's 100 percent. it's never nothing in medicine is 100 percent ever 
Um, so, you know, uh, but it does line up very well. But but look, I, I speak as an ethicist here. What's really different now is is children are in harm's way and children really have to be protected. They are completely dependent on the adult world uh, to consider their best interests. So that really is something quite different. Um, but you're right, people aren't lining up. Uh, you know, maybe they are somewhere. I'm not seeing that. Um, a lot of people are not being vaccinated. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure where that one is going. But um, yeah, it's a bit soft pedaled. And I, I think in Canada and many countries, it's not just us, but things got so heated with vaccination, you know, with, with the truckers convoy and, the, you know, the aggressive attitudes and things like that. That I, as you said, I'm not sure anyone really wants to walk back into another, you know, I, I think no one wants another round of vaccine wars. It seems it's not just truckers anymore. That might be a bit no, of a stereotype. And it never was just truckers, yeah. by the way. And I, I don't imply that. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So what advice do you have for parents on this, doctor, where, uh, you know, and I can understand how adults might feel great about taking whatever kind of new or old vaccines, but different for kids. What advice would you have? Well, I mean, I do think that most of us should right now be thinking about the ethics and the vulnerability of children. And um, that really has to come first. And that's a great reason why we should be vaccinated um, for the Christmas season. I've lost track of the date, but remember, these vaccines take two weeks. I'm trying to remember if, if Christmas is within two weeks. I've been so busy, I don't even know the date today. But it's very close to two weeks, isn't it? Yeah. So, yes. you know, it's really now is the time to do it because it takes a while to really kick in and become effective. Dr. Kerry Bowman with his bioethicist and assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Very welcome. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You might remember uh, last week we were talking to Kevin Donovan, chief investigative reporter with the Toronto Star, who has been covering quite extensively and even written a book on uh, the death of Barry and Honey Sherman, their murder uh, in their Toronto home. Coming up to five years, marking on December 15th since uh, they were murdered and still obviously no arrests made. Lots of uh, speculation, but uh, nothing concrete at this point. Oddly enough, we were talking last week as this date approached how uh, the daughter of Honey and Barry Sherman uh, refocused on the reward of $10 million to anybody has information in regard to that. And we were commenting about uh, the sister being involved, not necessarily the rest of the family. Oddly enough, today, information about how another $25 million has been added to uh, the pile, bringing it up to $35 million for a reward and the brother oddly enough um adding more to it to talk more on this kevin donovan chief investigative reporter toronto star is here with us now kevin thank you for the time i hope you're well i am thanks for having me on so I've been dying to ask you because, you know, obviously we talked about this last week and you were talking about how the, the daughter had mentioned this, not necessarily the rest of the family. And then over the course of the weekend, we're hearing about an addition to the reward. What are your what are your thoughts? Well, that uh, the new announcement from Jonathan Sherman uh, was uh, surprising to me. He hasn't uh, made any public comment uh, for a couple of years, uh, since, as far as I can tell, since I interviewed him in his garage back uh, at the start of the pandemic. Uh, Jonathan has said that he's, you know, he's all in to try and find the, the killer or killers of, of his parents. And and he is saying that he's going to add uh, $25 million to the reward. W what's not in the 
release is that is how they're going to decide who gets the money. Uh, back when Brian Greenspan announced a $10 million on behalf of the entire Sherman family, this is about 10 months into the investigation, he said that they were going to set up a, a kind of a committee of experienced uh, retired justice-related officials who were going to vet tips and decide who who would be deserving of the money. We haven't heard anything like that. It's just an addition of, of the money. I don't think there's any documents involved. Uh, but, you know, Jonathan says, uh, you know, he's going to put this money up, and I guess we'll take him at face value. Uh, so is there any reason to believe, you know, as you were saying, th- this previous reward uh, sort of uh, from a representative of the family, the family is putting this up. Is this now his individual uh, part of all of this? Are, are they working together to 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 raise this? Um, any details there at all? Because it seems as if they're they're coming at it from two different directions. I think they are. So there's four Sherman children uh, Alexandra, who is the one that made the statement last week, uh, she just uh, reannounced the $10 million reward, which they'd all put up uh, back in 2018. Uh, and then looking at her statement, uh, there was no indication that the other siblings were part of it. And now we have Jonathan coming out with his. For all I know, we're going to see something from the, the other two in the next couple of days, although I don't think so. Uh, they're, they're not getting along, uh, these two individuals, Alexander and Jonathan. They're not speaking, as far as I can tell. And uh, so it's kind of a confusing message, I think, to to the public. Uh, that said, if there's somebody out there who has information, uh, not only you know, are they being encouraged to, to hand it out, uh, they're being encouraged to give it to the police, which is, which is good. And now it'll be up to the police to decide if that information you know, is enough to raise to the bar of, of getting a conviction. This is not a reward for information. This is a reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of, uh, of, of whoever did it. So at this point, I guess we haven't heard from the other two, so we don't know if they're on the same page, just assuming they're on the same family page as the sister was uh, originally. And my other point to this is how can this be helping any investigation? I, I agree with that. I know that police are always nervous about an award coming out. Uh, a reward coming out. They're they're concerned that this will bring out people that are just looking for money and actually don't have information. Uh, a year ago, Hank Tzinga, who's the head of the Toronto Homicide Department, uh, he did uh, say publicly that the, the reward is still out there, and he was speaking on behalf of the family at the time. I expect this was a big shock to. Uh, to Inspector Idzinga today to see uh, that Jonathan was putting up this money. And, and, and I mean, Jonathan uh, is represented by a lawyer in uh, New York City, not a, not a Toronto lawyer. The, the, the lawyer is a former um, uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General, I believe, uh, an investigator, uh, a good guy uh, who I've you know, been unsuccessful in talking to. Um, but one wonders if the Toronto police is now going to call Jonathan and say, hey, just can keep us in the loop on any future announcements. Uh, does this create more confusion for the investigation? Does this um, make it more difficult? Well, in an ideal world, it'll, it'll help solve the case. Somebody will come forward mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and say, listen, I've got some information, and, and by the way, I'd like to, to be paid for it. That's, that's the reason this reward is put out. I think it probably muddies the waters. 
uh, out there a little bit. Uh, people don't really uh, like, uh, certainly police don't like being hit uh, unawares by by things like this. But, you know, it's, we'll see. I mean, it's look, it's five years in investigation. The police say it's not a cold case. They're still looking for information internationally from five different countries. And, and uh, what surprised me is that Jonathan... Um, who I have interviewed before, uh, put this out to to one news outlet and not 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 to all of us as the sister did. And what surprised me about that is, if you're putting out a reward and the Toronto Police have said, as they have said, that it's an international case, don't you want to get that thing out to everybody? Is you know to all the media so they can can it can be spread far and wide beyond Canadian borders. Uh, I'm kind of surprised he didn't put out a release like that. It almost seems reactionary. I, I expect it was. I, I, I'm, I'm myself speculating that, that uh, he saw his sister's announcement and, you know, got in touch with somebody that he knew at, at that particular outlet and, and, uh, and came out with this. Uh, I, I would have expected, a, you know, a more well thought out uh, offer where he you know say reannounced this uh, panel that is going to to vet uh, the tips to see which one is the one that that you know gets the, the 35 million so it, uh, reactionary would be a, I think that's a good uh, estimation of what it was so uh, obviously December 5th marking five years since this murder uh, your thoughts on where we are it's still a couple of days could something else come up in the next couple of days or even just your general overview of where we are at the five-year mark yeah so tomorrow December 13th is the actual anniversary of when they were were killed and the, the 15th is when the bodies were discovered I have a big piece coming in the in the Toronto Star tomorrow which you know, kind of takes a different look at, at the at the a very discreet period of time, just a couple of days uh, leading up to and then after after the murders. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's possible that something will, will uh, come out. Uh, I do get a sense from these announcements that something's, uh, something's in the air, but uh, uh, I guess t- time will tell, as, as you and I both know. Wow, fascinating. And it seems uh, the, the more questions you ask, the more uh, questions there are to ask, especially the conversations of just last week. Kevin Donovan with his chief investigative reporter with the Toronto Star. Make sure you're uh, reading the Toronto Star, the website, all of this for more, uh, as uh, obviously the next couple of days uh, we get closer to these important dates. Kevin, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks for having me on. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, obviously, uh, as you know, uh, we've got uh, uh, sports teams at Hamilton. We've got uh, First Ontario Centre that is in, in going to be going through uh, or going through a series. Well, it already has, I guess, in stages of um, of Renos and so on. And uh, obviously, that affects uh, the Bulldogs. And we've heard of uh, the Honey Badgers leaving town. Where does that leave our our sports teams and this Reno moving forward? What is the plan? And let's bring in P.J. Marchetti, CEO of Carmen's Group, president of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group, and here now. P.J., thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well. Thank you, Scott. So first, let's talk about what is happening here. Give us a bit of an update on where we are with this project, how it's all going to unfold. Sure. So we are obviously working closely with the city of Hamilton on elements of the uh, 
urban redesign and and the renovations of the three downtown entertainment facilities, most notable being First Ontario Centre, the uh, the arena at the um, corner of Bay and York. And so we are now, you know, obviously in touch with some of the different tenants regarding the uh, impacts of the renovation project. We shared with them last month that we, you know, are anticipating an 18 to 20 month uh, building shutdown due to the fact that the renovations will be more substantial than what we had initially committed to the city of Hamilton to do. And, you know, with that, unfortunately, comes some displacement. Uh, We've communicated that to our tenants and are committed to working more closely with them on alternatives, on solutions in the interim, uh, and and obviously, uh, you know, look forward to having meaningful discussions about what does their return back to a renovated facility look like. Uh, and so we are now working uh, with uh, our arena partner, uh, Oakview Group, um, around you know these conversations and what you know what the the future of the building will look like and what the new partnerships with the different tenants will look like. And so we're looking forward to continuing discussions with our tenants, with the Rock, with the Bulldogs. You know, we were obviously sorry to hear the news uh, about the Honey Badgers. However, we were encouraged by the, the, you know, the comment that they put forward that upon the successful uh, renovation that they do look forward to engaging in conversation with us. So we're committed to moving forward, you know, and engaging in more robust communications with the tenants. And, and ultimately, we, we hope that the public at large is going to be pleased with what happens to these facilities and making them world-class uh, and, uh, and much more exciting projects than what we'd initially contemplated. You were talking about how, and you know, isn't this always the case? As soon as you start to do a reno, oh look, we forgot about this, or oh look, we didn't see this, or this is uh, reared its ugly head. You talked about more substantial. Any? Can you give us give us any sort of example there, or or what has changed? So we we are going to be increasing the scope of the renovation. So we, you know, the dollar amount will be substantially increased. Um, and with the addition of Oakview Group as our partners, we're looking at, uh, you know, where we had, QPEG had made an initial commitment of $50 million, we're now looking at, uh, in, you know, $100 million plus. And what that means is essentially a full build-out of the undeveloped concourses uh, that exist within the, you know, the current footprint of the arena that the public at large has never seen. And so we are looking at, at building out more food and beverage spaces, private um, private spaces for uh, for suites and other premium, um, you know, corporate lounges and lounges in which the public can obviously buy beverages and additional food. So it's going to be a far more substantial investment. Uh, and and so with that, obviously, comes more time, uh, you know, and 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 more more you know disruption. However, we're confident that that this will mean a significantly enhanced uh, product. For the public to consume once it's done and our partners Oakview Group have substantial experience with new builds and renovations they're currently undertaking a 200 million dollar renovation of the of the Baltimore arena uh, they've completed billion dollar arena renovation projects in 
Long Island for the New York Islanders, the UBS Arena, and the Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle. They just finished uh, the new Moody Center project in Austin, Texas, which is now the, the highest grossing revenue arena in the world. Uh, and so they are experts at this. So having them aligned with us brings significant clout to the project and sophistication. And they obviously are experts in this field and know what renovations need to look like and what, you know, arena redesigns look like. And so we're honored to have them aligned with us. I think this is great for Hamilton. Uh, they obviously are very well connected in the world of sports and entertainment. And so, you know, this, so the future of sport and entertainment in Hamilton has never looked brighter with them aligned with us. And so there is going to be substantial new amenities that, uh, that the public will be able to enjoy once the renovation is complete. So obviously this is going to take a little longer than uh, you originally thought or the tenants thought. How do, and you know, I'm asking you their, uh, you their opinion, but how do, you, how do the tenants respond to this Bulldogs, the Rock, what have you, on having to wait this extra time? What's their response been? So, so, you know, obviously there was a bit of initial surprise at, at, at the details. The Toronto Rock did issue a statement noting that they figured with the increased renovation that there may be some enhanced uh, disruption, but they're, they're looking forward to being back and eager to be back. You know, we're hopeful. We've had some meaningful discussions in the last few weeks with uh, the Bulldogs and Mr. Anlauer specifically, and looking forward to continuing those discussions uh, with them. You know, you know, we totally understand uh, the, 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 you know, from their perspective, the, you know, the issue that displacement uh, brings. And, and so it's a case of, unfortunately, short-term pain for long-term gain for the community. And, uh, and so we're, you know, we are committed to trying to work with the, the, uh, the, the tenants around what do interim solutions look like and then what does, uh, you know, a future partnership look like in, in, a, in, a, in a brand new renovated arena. Obviously, we're welcoming our partners at Oakview Group to, to be party to those discussions. Um, and so we certainly, you know, understand where the teams are coming from. We acknowledge that it's important for us to, re, you know, to be really robust in our communications moving forward so that that way we, you know, we keep all of the various parties dialed in as, as updates happen. Um, and so we're looking forward to continuing and embracing meaningful dialogue, more robust dialogue. And, and then obviously with the public sharing more information about the project in the next few weeks, we will hopefully be launching a new website uh, that will share details about the project, uh, information um, with them about what's going to be happening, as well as ways in which we can solicit feedback around elements of the district visioning exercise and getting, uh, getting feedback from various stakeholders in the community, both the public at large, as well as the different institutions that are party to the downtown core, the art gallery, McMaster University, you know, the, some of the different so, developers. And not so, PJ, uh, we're almost out of time here, but is there any sort of date penciled in for the grand reopening? The, so we're hoping that, um, you know, in Q1 2025 that we've got a brand new renovated arena to share with the public at large. So that's been the, the cool. internal discussions. And so uh, so we're hopeful to, to start, you know, construction um, next year, uh, which would obviously see the, the better part of the... 2024, uh, ultimately, you know, uh, where the shutdown would take place. P.J. Marchetti with us, CEO of Carmen's Group, president of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group, talking about the future of First Ontario Centre and uh, new revisions to the Renault. Always the case. P.J., good luck with all this moving forward. 
So thank you so much. All right. So uh, we certainly know where our a uh, our health system, our healthcare system is uh, in a post COVID nineteen world, and an increase in the flu with the youngsters and respiratory illness and such. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure we're as bad. I don't want to even say that uh, as it was during COVID, but certainly in a crisis situation with healthcare, uh, once again being taxed. Except this time, uh, not with the older population, but with the younger population, and what we are. Uh, experiencing now uh where do we go moving forward when we were uh going through the midst of a global pandemic it was all about vaccination are we getting the flu shot with the same vim and vigor let's bring in ray watt dn Anden, associate professor university of ottawa and epidemiologist and is with us now ray watt thanks for the time i hope you're well i am well thank you for asking so we remember the old days when we were waiting for vaccine. We couldn't wait to get one um, and, you know, went through uh, by age group and such. Uh, here we are in, in a pretty sensitive scenario, again, with our healthcare system being overtaxed and the youngsters suffering uh, this time. How come we don't see as much uh, enthusiasm for a, vac- uh, for a flu vaccine as we did, say, a global pandemic way back when? That is a really interesting question. A number of answers come to mind. First is that people aren't as terrified of the flu because we've all been living with the flu for most of our lives. And if we're still alive, that means we didn't die of the flu, so we're not as scared of it, which is a bad way of thinking about it. Second is um, there is a sense that the flu vaccine was not as urgent, as not as potent as the COVID vaccine. That's true. It's not as effective, at least in the um, the early days of the, of the COVID vaccine. Um, also, I think we have this horrible effect of an anti-vaccination narrative that has taken hold across all of Western society, really worryingly so, where people are blaming vaccination in general for a host of illnesses and outcomes that really it's not responsible for. And that has, uh, pardon the pun, infected the minds of, of a large number of people. All this combined to have a low uptake. Um, it is worrying, and I'm hoping we can do something to change people's minds in the future. Um, we remember even in the latter stages of the pandemic, it was less about uh, people's health health because the Omicron wasn't as deadly, although it certainly did spread like wildfire. Um, it was more about trying to protect the healthcare system. Do we not feel the same way now? Again, there's this narrative that vaccination does not work to that same extent. I think people get mm-hmm. confused about the purpose of vaccination. Um, yeah. Is it to protect oneself? Is it to protect the healthcare system? Is it to protect your community? It's all of the above, and it does so differingly at each of those levels. Uh, for example, we know now that two doses of the COVID vaccine doesn't curtail transmission against Omicron as well as it did against Delta, but three or four doses does some good that, to that extent. Um, vaccination against the flu does curtail transmission to some extent. We're not sure exactly how much, but to some extent. But more importantly, any kind of vaccination keeps you out of the hospital quite likely, not perfectly, but quite likely, and keeps you out of the morgue quite likely. And that's really what needs to be uh, sold to people. When it comes to things like booster doses, I think people have said, well, I got my two doses. That's all I'm willing to take. And I'm not going to die. So what do I care moving forward? And that's an unfortunate way of thinking. The booster COVID booster dose uptake in Canada is quite poor. I think um, 50% of Canadians have taken one booster and only about 20% have taken the second booster. That's a shame because that second booster, the bivalent one, is tailor-made for the Omicron uh, variant. So it has uh, a good potential to slow transmission even further. What's the vaccination rate for people getting the flu shot? 
Do we know? Not great. So around 2020, I think it was like 39%, 2021, yeah. it went down again. So if you cast your mind back in 2020, back when we were in the throes of COVID pandemic, people were terrified of the flu. And so uh, we saw a record uh, uh, desire for the flu vaccine. And then when vaccines were ordered in 2021, not as many people showed up. So the numbers went down again. I haven't got the number in front of me. And now we're seeing a similar decline and uptake in 2022, um, despite the fact that this year's flu season is more pathogenic. It includes influenza A, which is more likely to put you in the hospital. And also the match between this year's vaccine and the circulating strains is better. So you actually get better protection from this year's vaccine. Every year, it's a battle to convince people to take the flu vaccine. And it's important to say that it's not perfectly safe. I think we have to be honest. There's always a tiny bit of risk of an adverse event, but that risk is real. It's just that the, the benefits from being vaccinated far outweigh the risk of not being vaccinated. Um, I remember prior to the pandemic and all of this, uh, the flu shot was for older people and people who were the most vulnerable. I mean, rarely would you ever hear of kids getting a flu shot. That just wasn't really in the messaging. Yet we're hearing from NASI, you know, anybody six months and older should be getting a flu shot. Considering where we are, should this message be changing? It's not your grandparents' flu shot anymore. Yeah, I mean, interesting you say that. In my world, it's always been for everybody. Uh, yes, you yeah. press that pedal harder for the seniors, but it's always been for everybody. And I've, all, I've always gotten my flu shot since I was a child up until now. But yes, we definitely need to get it into the arms of younger children because, as you say, the pediatric hospitals are under unprecedented stress. I mean, it is a nightmare out there in many ways. And vaccination isn't going to magically solve that problem, but it would help a little bit and every little bit helps. You don't want your kid being hospitalized so why wouldn't you give him that extra layer of protection right now? Uh, they're talking about a combination vaccine, flu vaccine and COVID vaccine coming out. Uh, will that encourage people more, do you think? It, you know, one shot for everyone. It depends on why people aren't getting vaccinated. If the inconvenience is a factor, if the fear of needles, of pain of the jab itself is a factor, then yeah, that will help. If it's a genuine fundamental distrust of vaccination science, this isn't going to help that much. But mm. every little bit that nudges us further along the uptake spectrum will help somewhat. I'm more energized by the prospect of these multivalent flu vaccines using mRNA technology that will have a more perfect match to circulating strains and maybe obviate the need for yearly boosters. That's coming down the pipeline soon. So the holy grail, the perfect flu vaccine might be around the corner as well. Hmm, that's fascinating. Ray Watt, uh, Dean Anden with us, Associate Professor, University of Ottawa, Epidemiologist, where we are with vaccination, whether it's the flu or COVID-19 boosters. Ray Watt, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As you know, uh, the uh, one of the marquee pieces of legislation for uh, Justin Trudeau's government is gun control uh, legislation. And First uh, Nations leaders voted last week to oppose the federal government's marquee gun uh, control legislation, adding to mounting pressure on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to back down from the surprise changes that uh, he introduced late 
uh, to the proposed law. Uh, Chiefs voted unanimously in favor of a resolution against the legislation known as Bill C-21 on the final day of the Assembly of First Nations annual winter meeting in Ottawa. The resolution expressed concern about the last-minute uh, changes, which would criminalize guns that First Nations people commonly use for hunting. Uh, many, when this was introduced, said, um, you know, it really wasn't focusing on the problem. Oddly enough, uh, at the same time, uh, there was a, a massive police bust in uh, Toronto, a gun bust, and out of the 62 guns that were uh, seized in this in this uh, arrest, 61 of them were smuggled in from the U.S. and were illegal handguns. They weren't uh, Canadian uh, legal handguns. One was, and that was stolen uh, in a break-in. So many are questioning the focus of of all of this, and now at the end, uh, a sweeping changes to it, just as it sort of uh, sneaks past everybody. Uh, Carrie Price, goaltender for uh, the Montreal Canadiens, also a hunter, uh, expressed concern on all of this. So what does it mean moving forward, especially uh, now that it has been red flagged by First Nations? Liam Midzane Gobin with a settler scholar and assistant professor of political science, Brock University, and is with us now. Liam, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing good so far. Are you surprised, Liam, that this was uh, red flagged by the Indigenous community, that they, they picked up on this and, and made a strong stance? I'm not that surprised. Um, honestly, the way that they've framed it is that, well, their concern is that this might impact their treaty rights uh, and kind of First Nations rights to to hunt, especially. Now, nobody is saying that they're not going to be allowed to hunt, but some of the the language that they're using in terms of the arms and the guns that are being targeted is the same as what the conservatives and the NDP are also charging in terms of targeting hunters, not targeting the real problem, like, like you just mentioned off the top there. And so it's maybe not that surprising that when the federal government doesn't engage with First Nations at all, that they're going to have something to say about it, especially when it touches on their their treaty rights like this. It, it, it seems uh, to be quite an extensive bill if you listen to the gun lobbyists. Uh, are you surprised they tried to toughen it up a bit in the last minute, trying to get it through without that consultation? I mean, that bit is is also not that surprising. Um, you know, as you said, gun control is, is something that the liberals have put a lot of stock into, and it's something that Justin Trudeau has, has really emphasized. And I mean, largely, he's been quite successful with it. Uh, at the same time, it uh, you know when you play it as a wedge issue the way that he has, uh, it it could if you try to grandstand a bit too much really come back to bite you. And it seems as though everybody's kind of lining up against him on this one. So where do you think this discussion is going between the prime minister and First Nations? It's kind of hard to know. Uh, the prime minister hasn't really backed down. Uh, he, to the best of my knowledge, has said that they're going to push forward with uh, the amendments as as proposed. Um, but at the same time, he was at the Special Chiefs Assembly on, I believe it was on the Friday, and certainly wasn't asked about C-21 at all. Um, you know, uh, Minister Lametti, the Minister of Justice, was also there on the same day, not asked about C-21 after the, the resolution had passed. Um, interestingly, Minister Mendicino, the emergent, the public safety minister, sorry, uh, he was there. He was not given the opportunity to ask, to answer questions. And so it's really legislation coming from from his office. And uh, it's not clear whether or not there would have been questions there, but uh, there hasn't really been any statement that they they will be engaging going forward, which is 
potentially a concern if this is being framed as a as a rights issue? So um, uh, the indigenous community has not, and it doesn't look like it will be consulted on this moving forward. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's it's hard for me to see the liberals bending on this, but I mean, it's possible at this point. They've they've kind of elevated the their pushback, so so it's totally possible that they might be brought in or you know be brought to committee or something like that. But I don't imagine it's a direct kind of government to First Nations engagement that. Really is what they seem many, to be asking for. Many will say why the focus on people who are the, the legal gun community or uh, hunters or and such, and and more focus should be on border issues and where the real issues around crime are. Is that a valid discussion? Is that a valid debate? It certainly has been our debate. Um, you know, when we start to see handguns be the major problem, then that you know, does raise those kinds of questions. Uh, It's hard for me to see the liberals not continuing to go back to this well. It's been successful for them in the past. And so there isn't really a reason for them not to at this point. And it's a way to kind of try to wedge both the NDP and the conservatives. So I doubt we're going to see the end of it anytime soon, really. Uh, Does the do First Nations uh, even bring up the border issue or is that even a concern to them? It's more about, well, you know, you're you're taking away our our, our rights to to do what we need to do here. So it isn't being raised in this context. There are other issues surrounding the border and First Nations. But similarly, there are a lot of issues just in terms of policing more broadly in First Nations, Um, the way that First Nations uh, communities and individuals within uh, urban spaces are policed is, quite frankly, different than any other settler Canadian. Uh, and so, you know, there there are a lot of kind of policing issues more broadly that I think are also being raised. But mm-hmm. at this point, the border isn't one of them. It would seem that this issue around the guns is not going to go away because this has been a tradition for them for many, 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 many generations. So is this not going to have to be dealt with by the government? It will at some point. My my assumption at this point is that the government's going to try to say that they're not actually infringing on treaty rights because there's no limitation on the ability to hunt um, or the right to hunt. So that'll probably be the way that they uh, try to get around that that question. But, you know, it's 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 kind of hard to know when the government seems to just change its mind on a moment's notice without a lot of fore, foresight or forethought, it seems. So, Liam, would that say that, you know, generally this law or these laws would not apply to the indigenous community? Is that what that they're saying? Is, that is unlikely. Um, I... I doubt that they would put that kind of thing into the bill. Uh, it's more likely that they will adjust to include or exclude certain firearms from the bill than they will um, just wholesale kind of exclude whole communities from it. Liam Midzane Gobin with a settler scholar and assistant professor of political science, Brock University, talking about Bill C-21, gun control bill, how it impacts First Nations. Liam, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Remember in the 80s when everything was free trade, free trade, free trade, markets were opening up, uh, it was going to be a boom. Or for some, uh, many thought it was just going to be jobs and everything exiting out the window. Uh, considering where we are now with world events, whether it's the Russian invasion of Ukraine, whether 
it's um, uh, the new positions of uh, the Chinese Communist Party and where that country is going. Has free trade changed? Does it mean something different now than it did back in the 1980s? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Glad to be with you. So is free trade on the decline, or is it just changing? Is the template changing, the game changing? Yeah, I I would say it's changing, Scott. But before we get right into it, let me just take you back a little bit. What is the purpose of free trade? Well, the theory is each nation can trade in those goods that it can produce really well, and we get rid of tariffs, which, generally speaking, hurt you and I as, as consumers. In other words, we artificially jack up a price to try to keep a local industry going, when in fact it's not terribly efficient, let's go for efficiency in the world. And Canada has signed free trade agreements with not just the United States, but all of the European Union, some lesser nations, Korea, uh, um, Israel as an example. Um, And so, you know, free trade is still there and still important. Now, five years ago, early in the Justin Trudeau government years, he was doing some talking around the Pacific Rim, where remember we had this Trans-Pacific Partnership, Mm -hmm. another one of those free trade exercises. And there was one noticeable country that had been excluded from that, and that is China. China is today the second largest trading country in the world, second largest economy in the world. We already have a free trade agreement with the largest economy in the world, the United States. And so he had mused that, well, depending upon how the Trans-Pacific Partnership went, maybe he should be looking at free trade with China. And China, again, five years ago, was really excited about that idea and said, yeah, let's let's sign an agreement today. Now, correctly, Justin took a deep breath and said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a lot of details to work out. Let's let's take this a little slower. And of course, now, five years later, we are no longer a favored nation of China. I think that's the nice, polite way to say it. Uh, I think if China was looking for a free trade partner, it'd look at just about anybody else at the moment. But what the lesson from all this is free trade is good and wonderful on an economic sense as long as you're trading with a relative equal. And what I mean by that is a country that shares your values, your kind of interests, your, your beliefs. What we've learned in the last few years is that as China has gained more and more economic power, it is also proving to be a bit of a bully on the world stage, uh, using its economic power to get some things that maybe we're not all that keen on. And so absolutely correctly, while free trade, I think, is still a popular theme, with certain countries, you've got to be very, very careful before you get into that dance. So how much can you integrate, say, the Canadian and the Chinese economy before you find yourself being held hostage in some way? Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's a great question. So, you know, in the last few years, we have seen after we arrested Madam Meng, China respond by finding fault with some of our grain purchases. You might remember there was canola, and then there were sweet peas, and I think there was some wheat. Oh, we found a speck of something. We're going to reject this. And that really sent our farmers into a tizzy. So uh, I I think you can still trade with people, and you can trade, if we will, at arm's length. We don't have to be free traders, but we can still trade with people. Oddly, in, in 2022, and I realize it's not over yet, But in the 11 or so months of 2022, Canada's exports to China have actually grown this year, even though China has been saying some of these more negative things. So, again, I think it's interesting that the reality on the ground is 
importers, those companies in China that need goods, are favored to Canada. They still like Canadian goods, but the official policy of the government is not so warm. So you, you can trade. It's just the question is, do you want to get into a free trade agreement that requires a different level of integration? I think we are comfortable with countries that share our values more. Uh, what about the trade imbalance, the fact that we get much more from them than they get from us? Right. Uh, and that's that again, that's a concern. That was a concern of why we did the free trade agreement with, with the United States and Mexico was to try to even that up a little bit. But mind you, this is true of just about any economy in the world. The United States has a, an unbalanced trade with China. Again, it exports more than it imports there. One of our problems is what is it that we have that China wants? And at this point, it tends to be relatively low valued goods like the grain, like lumber, like timber, like paper, pulp, those sorts of things. Oil, uh, in terms of our higher manufactured goods, China's not been interested in importing those. So again, I think what you can do is find some middle ground and, and go down that road. Uh, but if you want to get that deeper integration, you've got to find com- countries that you share more with. Our, our experience, for instance, in Europe has been very good so far because we share those same kind of democratic values. Hmm. I'll also say this, we can't ignore China because although it's the second largest economy in the world today, probably within 10, no more than 15 years, it will be the largest economy in the world. So you can't ignore them. You've got to find the right level to be involved without perhaps diving into the deep end. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University, trade with China, especially when relations aren't the best. As always, Marvin, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. When, and I've said this a bazillion times, and I find it absolutely hilarious, amazing, really, that this is the first time in my uh, adult life that uh, I've ever remember all three, uh, four major political parties before the provincial election saying they all wanted to build like over a million homes. Uh, and now it seems we put down the shovels and the hammers and picked up the darts and just started throwing them at each other. Uh, and how that's done, I don't know. It seems to be an impossible task. You might remember uh, we were talking to Councillor uh, Brad Clark uh, last week in regard to the city's concerns around Bill 23 with the province. Here's what Brad Clark said to us in regard to what the city is looking for uh, from the province here. My hope, uh, sincerely, is that calmer heads will prevail, that all of the hyperbole and political rhetoric that, that we're seeing in the media stops and municipalities have a good conversation with the province to understand the implications to the municipalities. Because I, I sincerely believe the province intended well. Mm-hmm. It's because we weren't at the table and could not raise concerns as to how it would be uh, implemented that that has caused us the problem. Again, my hope, and I think the majority of councillors around the table, their hope, and I know it's the mayor's hope, is that there will be consultation with the municipalities and that the province will recognize the financial impacts to the municipalities and modify the implementation or... Um, not proceed with certain sections of the bill. But until Uh, we sit down to talk, we can't fix that. 
All right, let's bring in Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough Glambrook. Uh, of course, um, uh, MPP Skelly and Lumsden were asked to, uh, well, I don't know if they were, but the suggestion was that they come and hash this out with counsel. Uh, Donna Skelly with us now. Donna, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I hope you're well. So far, so good. Uh, let's try to keep this uh, solution based. So um, what are your concerns with the city? I mean, uh, we heard Brad Clark there say that he's hoping hoping for a bit more consultation and, and some chatter about how some of these financial uh, implications are going, are, are going to affect the city. What is your take on all of this? Well, we sent out a letter November 30th to the chair of the um, large, uh, the big city mayors, indicating that uh, following an audit, all municipalities will be made whole in terms of any sort of lost development charge. And I think that's probably what he's referring to. Uh, In terms of consultation, we have done two years of consultation. Scott, we can't continue to talk about building homes or solving any problem and just talk, talk, talk and talk and not actually put in place some some plans to move forward with building 1.5 million homes. As you know, we all, whether it was municipal, uh, provincial, or federal, people ran on building affordable homes, building homes, building new communities. And when the province finally acts on it and says, this is what we have to do in order to achieve our goal, there's a lot of pushback. The reality is, uh, I'm not going to appear before council. I think that that was a bit of grandstanding, and I think that even their own council members recognize that. One of the council members who uh, voted against it said this is a little bit theatrical. What we need to do, not one councillor has ever called me to ask about the bill. I don't know if they've actually read it, but the reality is we need to build homes. We need to accommodate the projected growth, not only the numbers that the city came up with, but also the ex- the increased numbers due to the federal government's plan to increase the number of new Canadians coming into the country, most of whom will settle in the GTHA. I want this to be smooth. I want to work with our council members. I think we can move forward, uh, and I believe we can achieve our goal of building homes, subsidized housing, rental housing, and homes for young people so they can get out of their parents' basements. What do you think the obstacles here are? Because many people are watching this, Don, and they're going, you know, everybody's campaigned, whether you're the Greens, the NDP, the Liberals, the Conservatives on building homes, and now we're sitting here arguing about it. I think people are just at the point where they want results. So how do you, how do you clear up this? How do, you, how do you move forward with this? We move forward with what we've done. We're saying that we are going to um, expedite the process. Municipalities will have to work with developers to get shovels in the ground. I had a letter from one man. He's not a large developer, but he has been trying to build a subdivision of 100 homes for 17 years. Hmm. 17 years in in uh, red tape to to move forward with this with this plan. It's not about money. The money will be there to uh, as I said to make municipalities whole. We have to incent people to developers to build uh, purpose-built rentals. We haven't seen real rental apartment buildings built since the 70s. There's a huge demand in apartment buildings. But we also, I know, young people want to get into the market. And if we don't give them a break and get these buildings built quickly, prices only escalate uh, and they they simply will not be able to realize the dream that we have. I don't think that's fair. And I do believe that 
people who live in this country have the right, if they can afford to, have the right to live in the type of house they want in the community of their choice. Why even go near the green belt, Don? I mean, you know, obviously we've heard what the premier has said about that on the past in the past, and I know you're adding more to it as you're taking off of it. But why even go near that? Since it's such a bad word, it seems. Well, because it's just a bad word. I don't think people understand what the green belt is. There are already roads and homes and businesses within the green belt. They pretty much just stopped future development. But a lot of the ready-to-build property was outside of the green belt and was earmarked for development, but put in the green belt 10 years ago. The land that in Hamilton, for example, it has been purchased by developers decades and decades and decades ago, and it was actually part of the plan for the city to expand. The city's own planners put forward a plan that included sections of that. The city of Hamilton came to the province and asked that one piece of the green belt be removed for housing. So when the green belt was designed, when the borders were drawn up, I don't think that anybody actually got on the ground to see where uh, land was where it was beginning and where it was ending because a lot of the land that is in it can easily be removed and we can develop homes right away. It's either serviced or very close to being serviced. What is the message here to Hamiltonians on this who, you know, everybody seems to get up in arms when you start mentioning Greenbelt. What's your message to Hamiltonians here? We have to build homes for people or they won't come to Hamilton. If we need to staff our hospitals, we know we have a shortage of doctors and nurses and PSWs. If we don't give them a place to live, an affordable home, they will go elsewhere. They'll move to Sudbury, they'll move to North Bay, they'll move to Kitchener. And we will have a problem finding people to fill the jobs to take care of our most vulnerable. We have to build housing. This is a solid plan. Municipalities will be made whole. Let's just put the games aside and work together. And any city councillor that wants to learn more, pick up the phone and call me anytime and we can chat. Donna Skelly with his MPP for Flamborough, Glambrook. Everybody wants to build houses, but no one can really get any uh, houses done. And uh, the discussion between Hamilton City Council and the province. Donna, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Be well. Is that a Yes, I can hear the siren. What, what should we do? Nothing. In any other circumstance, that wouldn't be reassuring. But here with you, I feel reassured. That is an incredible clip of uh, David Letterman, his Netflix show, My Next Guest, will feature Ukraine President Zelensky. Uh, and that was a clip from that. Uh, obviously, Letterman making his way there for this uh, for this interview. Let's bring in Dr. Florian Gasner, Associate Professor of Teaching, Department of Central, Eastern, and Northern European Studies, University of British Columbia, and is with us now, a former resident of Donetsk. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. So what are your thoughts? Uh, obviously, uh, what, we're well over 290 days into this. Uh, many thought it would be over in just a, a few days. Obviously, keeping this message front and center is the Ukraine president's uh, priority. What are your thoughts of, of having Letterman show up and do this interview and the impact of this? I think it's part of an incredibly important uh, part of what the Western community is doing to not just provide 
uh, material support to not just provide financial support to keep the government running, but also to make these high profile public statements of um, programmatic support, of community support to show them that uh, the Western community as a whole is standing behind them, that we still see them and that we support them, not just with money and weapons, but also with hearts and minds. As I mentioned, uh, over 290 days now, many thought this would be over in a few days. Uh, many thought that, including the Ukraine president, would flee. Uh, obviously, that hasn't happened. Um, how come uh, Russia has not been able to do this? Is this all about the allies and in, in the support that they have supplied that has made this uh, seem impossible for Russia at this stage? Overall, the Western support with weapons and material is essential. But as you said, the pivotal moment was when President Zelensky did not flee because the whole premise of Russia's war based was based on the assumption that everybody, including Ukrainians, would think Ukraine is not a country worth fighting for. And Zelensky had the option to just you know, flee to his villa in Italy and that he himself, who had every opportunity to extract himself in that situation, remained back to fight um, was on the one hand inspirational for the other Ukrainians, but also just symptomatic of how Ukrainians feel of their country. And that is the one thing the Russians completely miscalculated on the desire of Ukrainians to fight and protect their home. Um, what do you predict over the winter? I mean, obviously, we know that things are going to be pretty dire. Um, some have said during the beginning of this, uh, you know, that, that this was just delaying the obvious. Is it obvious? I mean, do we know what the outcome of this is going to be? On the one hand, there is a very clear indication that Russia is losing and will never be able to reach its maximum goals, which is occupy all of Ukraine. But at the same time, um, there are still critical issues. And one key of them is that Russia keeps being supplied by Iran with uh, fairly inexpensive drones that they use to lay ruins to the Ukrainian infrastructure, which in the long term could be a problem for Ukraine with regarding uh, the availability of air defense. But at the end of the day, the momentum is clearly on the side of the Ukrainians. And we just have to hope that throughout the winter, they continue their successful streak of victories against the Russians. Do you see anything over the next six months that could trigger a turning point here on either side? If the Ukrainians are able, especially in the next two months, to break through the main supply route of the Russians in the north. And this supply route has been under attack since the Kharkiv offensive from two months back. And if they manage to break into that, and they're just, they can see the supply route. They are literally just a few kilometers away from that. If the Ukrainians break through that line, then things will look very dire for the Russian troops in Luhansk and possibly even in Donetsk. That's what we're all looking at right now. It seems either way, uh, Putin isn't going to come out of this with any sort of clear win. Is, is, is Should the Allies be providing some sort of off-ramp escape route? The off-ramp is a very tricky concept because the history of Western-Russian relations from the past 10 years is a history of off-ramps. I think most notable was the fact that 
Russia shot down a passenger jet with almost 300 people. And mm -hmm. then the West still found a way to accommodate Russia to allow them to host World Cups and Olympic Games and, you know, to allow some sort of detente. And all that Russia mm -hmm. did is use that to create new forces, to create more aggressive policy. So at this point, uh, it would seem irrational to real, like to sincerely think about so-called off-ramps. It has to be contained because this is a clear and present danger for the international community, food supplies, energy supplies, you name it. Uh, at what point does this, or is it already, become a humiliating defeat for Putin? Even though, obviously, Ukraine is still suffering greatly, it, it wasn't cut and dry for him. There's two perspectives. Within Russia, it is difficult for it to ever be a humiliating defeat for Putin unless there's a total loss because uh, they control the media entirely. But internationally, this is already a humiliating defeat. All the major allies of uh, Russia, such as China, for example, are backing off of it. And there was an article in The Economist not too long ago uh, saying that the Western community should just continue uh, fueling this because Russia has been a massive geopolitical threat for the past 10 years. And now with supplying you know, a fraction of the defense budgets to Ukraine, one of the major geopolitical enemies of the West has basically taken themselves out. So on the international scene, uh, the humiliation for Russia couldn't be bigger at this point in time. Uh, what about change of opinion of Russians living there? Or again, so much control, they just hear what you know they're, they're told and that's it. Is, is opinion changing on the ground in Russia? To a certain degree, individually, opinions definitely are changing. Like when you get into contact or if you see some individual people talking. But the main obstacle in Russia is that over the past 20 years, uh, the Putin regime has effectively dismantled, neutralized, eviscerated civil society. So there are no more networks where people who oppose the regime could talk with each other, where they could hold a meeting, where they could hold a rally. And therefore, it's difficult to imagine that you know, popular opinion on a large scale will change in a meaningful way anytime soon. Dr. Florian Gassner with us, Associate Professor of Teaching, Department of Central, Eastern and Northern European Studies, University of British Columbia, where Ukraine is right now. Uh, Florian, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much, you too. Talk to you soon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Every night at this time to talk about the Scott Radley show, uh, what's coming up after the news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's on the show all the time, yet I am never on his show. He never calls. He never asks me to come on. He never uh, wants to entertain the thought of having my voice on his show whatsoever. And I'm really quite... I'm really quite uh, <laughs> unhappy about that. Uh, if truth be known, Scott has been asking me to be on his show, especially the Christmas special, for a bazillion years. And for some reason, something's always come up. And today he sent me a note like, well, are you coming or what? Well, 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 well? I, I don't know. I got to look at my <laughs> I'm at least going to make it for an hour. All right. You have to do the whole two. All right. Uh, I don't know if you want to, because you're on after me. So it's like, you know, you've already had three hours of me. Do you want me for two more? That's well, five in a row. Rick, so Rick is also going to come in. I think Bill is. The, the plan is that it will be all the, the show hosts that will be on together. So they'll only have to hear you 25% of the time. I'm, I mean, unless you blather. <laughs> 
when you once you get me on, would you think you're going to shut me up? I mean, you're kidding me. If I'm uh, if I'm coming into the party, I'm going to dance. Uh, I've I've heard that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Enough of that. All right. So when is this coming up? This is Friday. Yeah, Friday evening. Oh, this coming Friday? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know about that. All right. So All right. We'll, no, we'll, we'll, we'll put uh, that down as a no for Thompson. The RSVP no, is not coming. No, no, no. I, I will. I will do my best. Can I eat dinner while we're doing it? Because it's just I'll just bring the food in while I'm sitting here. And we'll continue right on. You can eat dinner. You can. Uh, you can. If you don't tell us, you can even have a beverage or two. I mean, who's going to know? Oh, I'll tell you. <laughs> You'll hear the cork pop, my friend. That's well. All uh, right. Maybe, maybe I'll bring in some Athelbros here, and we'll we'll make it a real party. That's it. All right. There you go. So uh, more promotion for the Scott Radley mm. show. Keep listening. Uh, you never know what's going to happen. Who's going to appear? I think even Elvis is showing up on the show that day. Could be. Um, all right. So your thoughts on the changes to the board at Hockey Canada? This was announced earlier today. I was wondering what your thoughts would be uh, as this uh, new temporary board, I guess, is installed to try to get uh, control of this again. Well, uh, look, this Hockey Canada, far as I know, far as I can tell, in the eyes of, like, I don't speak, obviously, for every Canadian, but in the eyes of the vast majority of Canadians for the longest time was a great organization that did great stuff and was highly respected. And then all of a sudden, uh, boy, uh, how many organizations have a worse, have had a worse year? How many boards have had a worse year than Hockey Canada? So... I mean, all they're trying to do, I think, right now is not be in the news. That, mm. that, that's a success for Hockey Canada. If you can somehow manage to not be talked about, I think you've probably t- done exactly what you're wanting to do, which is, which is kind of weird considering that you've got the World Juniors coming up and that's a Hockey Canada thing and you've got Women's World Championships and you've got all this stuff. It, all they want to do is have nobody talk about them. And that's and and truly that's that's that would be a hugely successful board and and if this board like even if the people going on to this board if within ten minutes of this announcement coming down if nobody knows who you're talking about success. Uh, that being said, I'm not sure we can put lipstick on this and everybody will be content with that. True. Uh, won't they want to see a change in policy? Won't they want to see some sort of uh, template put in place that stops this sort of behavior? Oh, no, of course. And, and that's uh, of course there is. But the I would suggest that for a long time and it looks like now it may have just been ignorance, but we didn't think about those things because they we were thinking Hockey Canada was doing mostly hockey stuff. You know, Hockey Canada was running the national team and running the junior team and running the women's program. And we now we know all this other stuff that's gone on. So, yes, there, there has to be changes to things. And when I say that nobody's talking about them, um, nobody's talking about them in a bad way. Of course, people are going to be talking about them for the very reason you said. We're, they are going to have to be making some of these policies known. Uh, when I say nobody's talking about them, I mean largely in, yeah, oh, yeah. here's another it's- disaster that's befallen Hockey Canada. Yeah. No, no, no more bad news coming out of it anyway. Yeah, that old, that old saying about, you know, no news is bad news or all news is good news, not true. Is this something that you think can be changed easily uh, or, or is it a systemic situation? I mean, whether you look at military, whether you look at policing, whether whatever, uh, not to pick on other industries or other uh, situations, but is it one of those things that can be easily fixed? Uh 
Scott, I think that we live in a time when no person, no celebrity, no organization, no company, no politician, no nobody can satisfy everybody. There is just no possible way that you are going to make everybody happy. So what you're trying to do, I think if you're Hockey Canada, like most other places, is just not find your way into the bad graces of the majority of the of the country and if you can if you can say look we've we've fixed this and this and this and this uh, we're still doing this and this and this with hockey and you know nothing is perfect but i think you can look at what we're doing and saying yeah the average person the typical person who is being reasonable would say yeah i can see there's great improvement going on there i think that's what you want you're you're never going to have everybody agree because there's going to be people who it doesn't matter what they or any other person does they're going to have a problem with it that's just where we live right now that's social media that's where we live just basically make it seem make not seem make things do things that show that you're on the right path and that the problem are going away, most of them, and I think most people will be happy. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up. Scott, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Uh, Who are we thanking? Oh, Liz for producing today, Dave in the newsroom, and, of course, uh, Will Weber on the board. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hi, this is Nancy. Uh, this message is to Doug Ford and to Donna Kelly, who was just on the air. You ran a campaign not to build in the green belt, but you're going to add land to for the green the, the property you're taking from the green belt. Build on that property then, and leave my damn green belt alone. Isn't the whole country one big damn green belt?